everyone. Welcome to episode 40 of the Brosane Detroit Pistons podcast. I'm Carl Rosane. And I'm Alex Rosane. And uh, we are about a month before the new season with our new head coach, Dwayne Casey. Thought it would be a good time to dust off our Pistons punditry and, and lay down a podcast. Maybe we'll do another one official preseason episode, but um, I don't know. A lot's happened since we last talked. Uh, we have a, We have coach of the year on our team now. And the East is completely changed with LeBron going West. We can kind of get some get a sense of like how good we might be this coming year with the recent changes. Uh, this is really going to be the first season where we – this will be the first time where we can get a fresh look and see how good we can be with a lineup that's really pretty stuck for a while. Uh, so we have to see how well we can do and how well Dwayne Casey can take us. Yeah, it was tough seeing Stan Van Gundy go. I think people were – wanted him out. They were sick of him. It, we, you just sort of get a stench on you as a coach if you haven't had uh, success that gets people excited for a couple of years. Um, I'm doing my usual apologist stuff where I'm always uh, think it's understandable all the moves everybody made. But it is genuinely exciting to get uh, a new coach in who has a good track record. And the players seem excited. I, you know, you see... Um, it, I feel like you've heard a few things about you know, Stan Van Gundy's practices were really long. He was so fanatical about preparation that you would have to spend a couple hours before every game um, learning every single play the other team does and what our, what the response is. And I guess that, you know, that just wears people out. And obviously um, it didn't inspire everybody to, to play their best. Yeah, you, you didn't see people coming out of the woodwork to defend him when he was fired. No one was saying good riddance, but it wasn't like in Dwayne Casey's case where many of the players in the Raptors were bummed that he was fired and thought it was a bad idea. Um, you know, and, and I remember last episode, I think we laid down a pretty decent case that, like, you know, it's fine that Van Gundy was fired, but, like, as we made the case, he, he didn't make as many huge mistakes as I think people thought he did. Uh, but thankfully, that same kind of impatience led to an opportunity for us. I was worried we would just hire some random person who wasn't that good. That was my biggest worry. But now that we landed Dwayne Casey, I'm excited. I'm in support of the new change. It's nice to have a fresh look. The one thing, you know, I I was trying to do some research about how to assess Dwayne Casey as a coach, and he obviously has a good reputation having bounced around the league. You know, he was an assistant coach for the Mavericks, and he was a head coach. He had the hook pulled on him pretty quickly in Minnesota. But then he really had a great run with the with Toronto and, and took them from a crappy team to steadily developing the players. They didn't really have any big free agent moves, and they developed DeMar DeRozan and um, oh, Kyle, Lowry. Kyle Lowry. Yeah, and, and, and to become like a top-five team in the, in the whole NBA last year. And then they just choked and underperformed against LeBron. They were going to lose anyway probably, but they got swept. So that was it for him. And, and, uh, and But... So the one thing I can probably put my finger on that I might tie to the Pistons, besides maybe having a better relationship with the players, is player development. Uh, is there a reason that to believe that DeMar, one of the reasons DeMar DeRozan had like a late career improvement on his three-point shooting was that Dwayne Casey's staff and him were part of that, or is that just kind of a coincidence? Can we expect him to actually help Stanley Johnson become turn the corner and become actually a good NBA player instead of merely promising for the you know fourth season in a row? Uh, things like that. Yeah, it's one of those things where if you have success, then everybody's very interested in everything you say about all your habits. You know, we're, we're like reading articles about what Elon Musk, like what shaving cream he uses or whatever. 
uh, you know, uh, <laughs> or you know, a, a company raises a lot of money in Silicon Valley, and suddenly their management techniques become like core principles that everybody that everybody should consider using. And it might be because they're good at internal management or HR or talent development, or it might be because they just they got lucky as a first mover in some market niche. Similarly with coaches, it's like if you win, you seem brilliant with everything you do. Uh, there's no denying uh, Dwayne Casey had a good track record of steady internal development, but uh, DeMar DeRozan gets a lot of credit. He should get a lot of credit for working really hard and turning himself into a good player. So it's a combination of setting good expectations and um, and the players being uh, amenable to it. Now, Dwayne Casey's personality, everyone says he's a, a really great guy. Um, like, they really emphasize it a lot. Um, that probably was a really good fit for having Kyle Lowry reach his peak because Kyle Lowry was bouncing around the league and everyone was just short of just coming out and saying he's a complete asshole uh, uh, earlier in his career. And he, you know, quote unquote matured or they had a good relationship somehow and it worked. And yet Dwayne Case is the same guy who, you know, it was actually Minnesota. He coached it. You know, he, he didn't have a great track record there. He was 500 and below 500. Um, what well, one thing is, so player development is really key, um, for us because our roster is kind of stuck for a couple of years. So internal improvement, if he actually is good at that, rather than just being, having good luck to have good players uh, that have the drive to succeed. Um, that's really key because our roster is really stuck kind of how it is for a couple of years. We could make lateral moves trading like for like. You know, we could trade Andre Drummond for someone on a similarly blah contract, you know, a borderline all-star maybe. And maybe that would be good, maybe that would be bad, but we're not going to make a huge leap. Um, you know, I also wanted to add, I'm excited about um, having some funkiness on offense, I think. He, you know, he wants to have a good uh, wide-open, you know, spacing offense, a modern offense. But, he, you know, he was an assistant coach, I believe, for George Carl and for Rick Carlisle in, in, in between his head coaching stints. And, you know, they, I believe Toronto had, like, a, a top 10, top 5 offense the last couple of years um, without having that, you know, top 5 player. Um, Lowry and DeRozan were just, like, sort of odd players that are really good at a couple things. Kyle Lowry has his funky, like, pick and roll, put your, uh, keep your butt on the defensive player and knock him away. And, you know, DeMar DeRozan's the key of the uh, slashing mid-range jumper, and, it, and somehow it worked. So that'll be a breath of fresh air. I, I think Stan Van Gundy was, you know, had some offensive principles, but was really, his main strength was preparation and um, professionalism, yeah, and which is great to lay that foundation. And now our players have developed under that. But now maybe we can like run some modern plays. Well, I th I think that one of the the Raptors made some adjustments last season to be a more dynamic offense. But his assistant coach Nick Nurse was credited for that, and and Dwayne Casey was clear to give him credit for that too. But Dwayne Casey also is known for being a really good job at assembling a good staff. And that's also something that's hard to really assess. I mean, I was looking about who we brought with him. He brought a player development guy, DJ, DJ Backer, with him from um, from Toronto, who's supposed to be a good player development coach. But at this point, there's I have zero way to assess. You know, if, if you look at any professional NBA coaching staff, every, every assistant coach is going to have something that looks credible 
on their resume. Yep. So I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna venture to say that it looks like he's brought a great staff with him, but uh, maybe that is something that he. I'm, I'm, it seems like Van Gundy also had. It seemed like they really invested in having a, like a pretty large staff of, of people reviewing film and, and scouting and things like that too. I remember reading about that when he was coach. So yep. no matter, I'm sure every single team has local sports writers talking about how they're this year they they have some edge because they have some new guy watching video in the room or something like that. Yes. And player development also isn't just one thing. It's like no one invented, it's not like Casey invented the concept of player development. Um, Dwight Howard reached his peak and Hito Turkoglu was used just in the right way. And Richard Lewis became the modern NBA power forward. And JJ Redick became, went from uh, maybe rotation player who can get on the floor because he can shoot to like an NBA starter who made $20 million last year all from uh, Stan Van Gundy's player development. But they, somehow he worked with them, th- those particular personalities. Rashard Lewis was easygoing and willing to do anything for the team. J.J. Rennick was willing to dig in. And Dwight Howard grudgingly did it for a few years, became an all-NBA player, and then got him fired because he hated him. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and for whatever reason, Van Gundy's method didn't work for our, us and our players. Uh, you know, Drummond did take to heart some professionalism stuff and got in really good shape last off season and stuff, but maybe a different style of player development will work better with this group of people. Cause again, like Kyle, Kyle Lowry couldn't reach his peak until somehow he got to Toronto and he worked well with Dwayne Casey and he was a late bloomer and became this, like one of the best point guards in the league in his late twenties. So, uh, you know, here's hoping that somehow this is just a better fit. But as you said, we just have no way of assessing this. It's all just kind of um, backfilling details or a story based on the results. If the results are good, um, you know, people will claim they knew it all along. And if the results are bad, I don't know. If- one, one thing I don't remember about Casey, Casey's tenure, I'm not sure whether it's true or not, is whether he ever faced a situation where a serious injury caused them to readjust their team and still be better than you thought they fair with that. Like, for instance... Brad Stevens with the Celtics. Or Popovich, or Popovich winning 47 games without Kawhi last year. Yeah, like just like, wow, that, that it's pretty hard to argue with that. Whereas the Pistons, uh, the one season where we had Reggie Jackson healthy the whole year, our roster was constructed to actually be like a top uh, 12 or top 12 offense and a top 10 defense, and that was the year we went to the playoffs and things were looking up. But we were especially vulnerable to uh, Reggie getting injured. And part of that was just the fact that we had zero playmaking besides him, and we can talk more about that in a little bit. But also, you wonder whether or not Van Gundy just didn't have the creativity to pull to get pull off an offense without that. Uh, I don't remember Dwayne Casey facing that situation and being impressive. But it seems like they the, the plus is that they didn't have some like superstar go there. They developed players, uh, but the minus is I don't remember them like you know DeRozan gets injured and they still managed to win really well. I, it, it could be true. I just didn't look at that piece of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. But I, I think what you hear about him, again, all we can go is based on what sports writers say or reputation, is nice guy, players play hard for him, was willing to work with management to set new expectations and, like, revolutionize the offense. And so it was, it was, about, it was about culture and, um, you know, the esprit de corps on the team and all this stuff. But you don't hear the, like, mad scientist 
he's got a million trick plays for everything. You know, Brad Stevens gets a lot of press for, like, he's got the best out-of-bounds play for every situation, and he's always tinkering up the offense. And with Popovich and his staff, they're they're just constantly uh, doing evolution on the offense and looking for the next edge, and they have a little bit of that Van Gundy fanatical preparation, and, you know, you'll have a, a 12-year veteran who Popovich will pull off the floor and yell at him because he missed an assignment and somehow they accept it. Van Gundy, you know, shrieks from the sideline and everybody ignores him and tunes him out. Um, I don't know how, you know, there's a lot of discussion about did, did um, Tim Duncan and his willingness to be coached like that and just have no ego make Popovich possible. And you just like, you just, he's a good coach, but he got lucky that Duncan created a whole generation of that culture on the team. So Casey, will change our culture in a way that I think has people more motivated and, and less dispirited. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know what kind of bag of tricks he has for offensive plays. And, you know, is, is he going to be featured in a Zach Lowe article about look at the cool, innovative, you know, pick and roll wrinkle, uh, the Pistons are running, uh, to counteract some some new defensive idea. He's writing articles like that throughout the season about little things the Warriors are doing or the, the Celtics are doing. Or, and, um, you know, we haven't been featured in any of those articles except maybe we're the defense sometimes. I mean, the one notable thing some people noticed was our shift towards Drummond being at the top of the key with dribble handoffs and, and him becoming a decent passer. But really, last season, Reggie was injured again, and we just sucked. And that's kind of the end of the story. And... I, and I, I wonder if, like, if everything goes right this year and no one gets injured and we actually have a good season, uh, I wonder if Van Gundy will be grumbling because you wonder if he could have just also been really good had he had the shot. Uh, Alex's phone is whistling. <laughs> but um, that's, that's our dad calling me. <laughs> so, yeah, we should patch him into the podcast, see if we can get a... No. <laughs> um, so th- I wonder... Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm wondering. Is it all kind of irrelevant? It certainly won't hurt to have someone that it doesn't seem to be borderline pissing off the players. Now, Drummond, one thing that that came out recently that was caught my attention was an article on cleaning the glass about... Um, now Dad's trying to call me. This is hilarious. Um, so when the brothers get together and Dad wants to get a hold of us, he's going to keep hunting for us. So... The cleaning the glass article, cleaning the glass. If anyone who listens to the Brosane hasn't checked it out yet, really should. It's, I think it's really one of the best sports geeks basketball websites. They have really good stats and, and interesting articles. And they had a whole article on Andre Drummond where they broke down his offense and his defense. Uh, had really good clips where they broke they broke down his his sort of failings. And uh, I don't know what. They, they, it was it was pretty damning to, to my to my uh, eyes. Uh, they weren't saying that he's a bust, but like the bottom line is that they were like we're he, we're to, we're really worse on defense, uh, pretty convincingly since uh, with him on the floor. Uh, and so it says like the Pistons were four point one points per hundred possessions worse on defense with Drummond in the game last season, and that differential was even worse the prior season with uh, almost nine points better with him off the floor. And we've only been better on defense with him in one of his six NBA seasons. And they break it down to him, uh, two things, inconsistent effort and making pretty big mistakes positionally, where you just see him kind of being a little bit clueless and leaving someone open for a wide open three or not committing hard enough. Uh, and they also make some points about him on offense, like 
not really committing towards his role as a rim runner often enough and also just not being a very talented uh, playmaker himself. So when he does opt to, say, shoot a running hook instead of um, like doing a skip pass as he's approaching the rim and, he, and he's getting coverage, he, he won't make that shot. So the bottom line is he's a mediocre offensive player. He's an elite rebounder. Uh, he led the league in rebounding with 16 rebounds per game, which is a, a eye-catching number. Like only Dennis Rodman's done better. Um, but the bottom line is like he does not a good defender, and he's not great on offense, and it's kind of disappointing for our yeah. all-star on their team. Yeah, I mean the the framing of that cleaning the glass article is he puts up great box score stats, but the team doesn't do better with him on the floor, and then they break down why. And you know it's um, he's got this raw talent, he's got this athleticism. He wants to improve. He's not like trying to um, trying to say I'm already good enough. You know, I I don't need to improve. Doing the Dwight Howard, look, I just need ten post up touches per game or anything like that. You know, one thing that um, a couple things that stand out to me from Drummond's numbers are one, you know, after we got Blake Griffin on the team, um, when did Blake join join the team, Carl? Do you remember which month that was? January. In January, yeah. So starting before, up till January, um, month by month, uh, Drummond averaged three, four, three point seven, four point four assists per game, and then starting in February, March, and April, one point seven, one point six, two point five assists per game. So Drummond's role changed, and he's sort of, you know, he, if you look at his whole year, he has this this big jump in assist per game numbers for his career. But yeah, and that's all going to maybe go away. I think that's I think that just goes away. That was a, out of necessity to just have somebody else besides Reggie with the ball in their hands, just grinding his knees to dust. Um, and I think Blake just plays that high post, handle the ball role now. So we're back to basics with Drummond, um, committing to rolling hard to the rim, uh, offensive rebounding, uh, setting good picks, um, and then. When he gets the ball on a roll and somebody has cut that off, don't shoot a floater unless you have to. Try to hit the open man. And that's part of the maturity of, of growing as a veteran is just, like, learning those nuances. I hope he commits to it. You know, he, he seems to be having fun in the offseason posting videos of him, like, shooting corner threes and stuff like that. And, you know, there as a something to add to his arsenal in his career – I mean, it'd be great if he could hit a if he could hit a wide open three. That gives us some more options on offense. But you know, I, I just I I have two really big concerns about that. Is one being far away from the basket neutralizes his biggest strength, which is he's one of the best offensive rebounders in NBA history, mm-hmm. like in the history of human beings on planet Earth. And if he's standing in the corner waiting to shoot a three, he has no chance of getting offensive rebounds like that. And the second thing is, if he's if he's trying to shoot corner threes or he's standing out on the corner, that makes it really hard to get back on defense. You, I've seen a lot of you know Zach Lowe articles about transition defense over the years, and the person who's standing in the corner is usually a wing player, and they have to just really dig to get make sure they're back in position on defense. And uh, I don't know if Drummond has it in him to just make that commitment to always get back, to make the extra effort to get back because he's standing in the farthest possible place on the court you can from where he's supposed to be on defense when the, when the play ends on offense. And I'm just, so I'm, I'm pessimistic about it, but it could, it could really unlock stuff. If Drummond's in the corner and it's a credible threat 
and his guy can't just stand under the rim. Blake Griffin gets a lot more layups bowling, bull rushing his way to the rim. Um, Blake Griffin, uh, when he was playing center and Anthony Tolliver played power forward last year, spacing the floor, our, our offense was really good. Um, and, you know, we lost Tolliver. He had a, a, a career year shooting from three. He's pretty old. Um, you know, we, we couldn't afford to keep him this year um, because of all the other mediocre contracts we have. So he's gone. Uh, if, if we can have a little bit of that floor spacing, but I just don't see it. Uh, the Drummond three-point shooting being a big part of our success this year. No, yeah. I mean, and what I would what would be great to see is that he just accepts his role and he gets better at team defense and he gets and he just tries harder on defense and, and that's his core as he becomes uh, you know he's got the he's got the freakish athletic ability to be a Dwight Howard in his prime style player uh it just doesn't seem like he's interested in doing that it's a hard role to play um i, I just have this growing suspicion that he's going to be happy to be uh impressive enough on the box score that he is a borderline all-star or all-star in the East kind of person. He's making over $20 million a year. Uh, you know, like that's, that's a pretty good life I, if, if for him right now. And it, would it be harder for him to accept ego wise that he's not a go-to player on offense ever. He is like a Deandre Jordan style player. And then because this really focuses on locking things down and being an elite rim protector. If he makes moves towards that, it'd be great. Uh, but I don't know. I just, it has, it, he's been moving kind of further from that direction yeah, I mean, j- just this vision for him that maximizes our success is be a Tyson Chandler or DeAndre Jordan player, except the super elite rich man's version of that, where you can also make a pass to somebody cutting to the rim. He, you know, he actually was decent at that, um, and he's better than them on, on offensive rebounding. And then on defense, um, he's quicker than they are in terms of staying in front of guys on pick and roll or getting out on shooters, which is the game has changed since the very career peaks of Tyson Chandler and DeAndre Jordan to having a lot more floor spacers and a lot more need for um, very your biggest players to somehow deal with guys shooting three-pointers. Drummond is a little uncomfortable with that. He wants to hang around below the free, th- the free throw line, but... You know, it's it's like it's been a couple of years, and he has to just get comfortable with it. Watch I mean, film. He's got really quick feet, and when he commits, commits to it. There was an article that, any given play, he can do it. Like I think in 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 some assessment of his some raw assessment of reflex speed or foot speed, I think he ranked his skills would place him as quick as an average NBA guard. Yeah, and he's like you know ninetieth percent, you know, just like out of off the charts as a big man. So that, that that's what keeps us happy, you know. And plus, last year he, he he became a good enough free throw shooter that it didn't ruin his career, which was good to see and things like that. But you know, just the, the cleaning the glass was a sober a sobering reminder that Drummond. It's the reason why that he's not he's not good enough to be to anchor a team. Uh, you know, if he was as good as he, if he really reached his potential, I think he alone would be good enough to make a team. Uh, like a, a, a perennial, at least eighth seed in the East kind of guy. You know, he's not good enough to do that. He's not. He, he's a borderline all star, and we need him to be, you know, third team all NBA for us to re- reach our potential. And he, and the reason why he was a lottery pick was because of that potential. People saw 
you know, the, the athletic and coordination possibilities for him. But it's, you know, I, I've never been in a situation where I had to try to be in the zone, really focused for, you know, all these plays in a row, all these do, actions that the offense is running. You have to read and react, read and react, be sprinting everywhere um, all the time, even when it might not matter for four plays in a row where you do it. And then suddenly you're locking it down, and that's why you have an elite defense. Just, um, you know, that's what Van Gundy was trying to get him to do. That's what Popovich would try to get him to do. Um, and why Popovich is always yelling at Pau Gasol because he's sort of like floating around, you know, not not sprinting to where he needs to be. We'll see. I mean, the, the, it's just the scenario where we reach our peak and, like, win 50 games involves Drummond getting a lot closer to, to the vision that scouts see for him. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier you had done some analysis on ISO plays, and I had mentioned before that the reasons that the Pistons were particularly vulnerable to having Reggie Jackson, who's merely like an average starting point guard, get injured is that we just really lacked playmaking. Uh, someone who can someone who can break the offense, the defense down and open up shots for other people, things like that. And we saw that the one season where he was healthy all year, we were pretty good on, on offense with uh, him and Drummond being the core of that as a pick and roll threat. Now, that's that's the one that that's the one reason why you might say that the Blake trade was defensible. Uh, we lost, you know, we, we lost. Uh, Tobias Harris in that trade, who was one of our best pure offensive assets, you know, like a, a, a stretch three or four guy who could who was really good at shooting threes and things like that. But he was not a play, he was not a playmaker. He couldn't break down the the off the defense. So and, and Blake Griffin is uh, he's a good passer. He's a good a really good post up player. Or he has been. So uh, it could be that signing Blake Griffin was following betting on Andre Drummond were the two kind of terrible, bad decisions that will plague Van Gundy's history as a Pistons coach. But it could be that it works out well for us. So, Alex, why don't you tell us more about your, some of your analysis about playmaking and, and the Pistons' lack of it and how important it can be. Yeah, and, and I think I've alluded to this a little bit in, in uh, the past couple episodes, but just, you know, and the N- NBA.com, stats.nba.com site has this play-type data where you can, you know, it, it, what types of plays was a guy involved in where it finished in a scoring attempt? And it has stuff like ISO, a pick-and-roll ball handler, pick-and-roll roll man, post-up, transition, that kind of thing, spot-up. And then what, what was the team, what was the um, points-per-hundred possessions rate at which the team scored when the uh, um, a player ran that kind of play and, and, uh, and it ended in a shot attempt? And... You know, I, I was thinking about category, categorizing these in terms of which are the types of plays that really, they aren't just a guy running a, off a pick and catching the ball and, and shooting it, but like um, the guy who really breaks down the defense, the guy who you're going against a set defense and you cause them to have to get into switching and, you know, make tough decisions and where you end up um, leaving guys open for open threes. You know, the, the best teams end up making it look really easy James Harden breaks down the defense, and then there are five guys on the Houston Rockets who have high-volume, high-percentage, wide-open threes. But it's really because James Harden, just, no one can stay in front of him, and he that creative force. So I looked at, you know, who, who on the Pistons um, has these types of plays 
ISOs, pick and roll ball handler, and post up, where they have um, our our efficiency when they do that is like um, a top five team level uh, offensive efficiency when we do when we do that play, and so the volume of plays where you're that good is a good proxy for how big of a threat are you to break down the defense and who really does that on our team. Well, the the answer for us last year was. Um, about one play a game, either Dwight Bikes or Ish Smith would run an ISO <laughs> at a pretty efficient um, pace. So th- that's pretty negligible. And then Reggie Jackson, four or five times a game, uh, running pick and roll ball handler and scoring himself. He was so that tracks with the eye test of like at the end of games, the guy we can rely on to, you know, maybe not always score, but he can create chaos. He can get by his man and make the defense start making decisions make us be able to hit open three-point shooters was Reggie Jackson. And that was it. Yeah, and, and just a reminder, I, I have it here that leading up to his injury last year, uh, where he, you know, up until I think it was December, we were 14th in the league on offense. No, no net rating. And then on offense, what was it? It was 15th. 15th. So, unfortunately, like, we were, like, unlike previous seasons where we were actually like a top, almost a top 10 offense. We were merely like an average offense with Reggie playing well. So that kind of shows that we were really becoming even more in need of a playmaker. And, and that's with Tobias Harris. I mean, Avery Bradley just tanks your offense. Um, you know, he just, he just wasn't a good fit. He might just not be a good player. He might've been playing hurt most of the year last year. It's not clear. Um, but Tobias Harris is not on that list. He just didn't do that much for us. Yeah. But what Blake Griffin adds is, the ability to, um, one, he can do a post-up creative plays. He's just outside of a top 10 level offense at decently high volume in post-up plays. And so that's a second weapon we have to have the defense um, react to us a little bit instead of us probing and waiting for somebody to like trip and fall down or something like that. Now, was he, was he just out of the top 10? I know he was just out of the top 10 when he played for us last year when he, after he arrived, but the previous season, he was a top 10. Threat. Yeah. In pat in past parts of his career, he's been a good post-up threat. Um, and he, um, I think there were just, hopefully there were just some growing pains. It may be, um, but maybe he's slowly losing athleticism and just won't be great again, but a guy who's above average, who can get high volume on that. Yeah. And then his secondary ability where he's really elite for his position is passing. He can pass out of the post. He, he, ran pick and rolls to great success with um, DeAndre Jordan in L.A. Yeah. If he can do that with Drummond, that's good, too. So that's where um, we also the, – the other kind of good scoring threats we had with, you know, people having high volume with high efficiency and different play types were – they weren't that creative type plays, but it's still a, a threat to have your offensive system be, be good. And that's um, – Andre Drummond was had a decent – uh, track record scoring on uh, being the role man on pick and rolls and on cuts uh, where somebody else has done something and he cuts to the rim or can catch a lob or, you know, so he's, he's a threat when he doesn't have the ball in that way too. That's valuable. Also, Andre Drummond had four plays a game where he scored on putbacks mm-hmm. at, a, at a very good uh, efficiency. And so he's just this, as long as you have two other creators who can break down the defense, he really does add to your offense with his passing, cutting, putting pressure on the rim, being a roll man, and putbacks. 
by the way, again, that's why I don't want him hanging out in the corner for shooting corner threes and maybe a couple times a game so he can rest or something. So that's, that's my vision for why, um, you know, even though Tobias Harris was a decent offensive player, he was really strictly a complimentary player and he just didn't put pressure on the defense to react. He could just hit an open shot and run stuff competently. Um, the other guy who, who came out pretty good on some of those secondary things are Reggie Bullock. You know, if you if you add up all his, like, cutting, catching a dribble hand, scoring off a dribble handoff, and running off screens, he added he added something to it. He had uh, three or four of those plays a game. Decent spot-up shooter. Pretty good transition player. So, you know, kind of a efficient, like, utility infielder. Once you're once you realize like okay the first like Reggie or Blake Drake breaking down the defense didn't work we need to run our offense Reggie Bullock and Andre Drummond both contribute to that so you know th- this isn't um, some a, a vision of like us having an elite offense to have an elite offense you just got to have a guy like James Harden or Kyrie Irving who can just five or six times a game do some do some magic and just score by force of will and talent. Um, and we, you know, we don't have that, but we can be good. We could, we could probably have the 10th best offense in the league, uh, or, or a couple spots better. If this comes together, if Casey figures out how to have these parts fit together, you know, if Luke Kennard can stay on the floor with his defense and, and, uh, unlock some things with his shooting, if Reggie Jackson doesn't get hurt, if, 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 if. Yeah, and maybe Glenn Robinson ends up being kind of like a Tobias Harris-like player. You know, he, he's he's one of the guys we got in the offseason who is mildly exciting. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of things that we can we can paint a rosy picture, but we're, we're kind of used to painting rosy pictures before the Pistons season in the last few years. And essentially it's going to take some luck um, to, to not have injuries because we have a couple of people who are injury-prone that are very key, obviously. So... So let's let's take a quick roundup of where we where we are in the East now. With the hey, now that LeBron's in the West with the Lakers, every Eastern Conference team thinks that now that the East is wide open. But I think we can concede that Toronto, Boston, and Philly are all clearly ahead of us. With, yeah, they're that first tier. With that first tier or tier one point five, maybe you know. Um, and and then we're in the mix with like Miami, Milwaukee, Indiana, Washington, and you know all. I'm sure every every everyone fan of those teams. Uh, including my colleague uh, Michael Delp, who's a, a, a Washington fan, who might actually listen to this podcast. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him if he heard this to see if he really listened to it. <laughs> um, uh, is now thinking that they're going to be that fourth spot, you know? Right? And so, of course, we are too. But so, but yet, Kevin Pelton put us at about 39 wins, which would put us on the very outside of that pack of five teams, and we'd be the ninth seed again, just like we were this year when we had won 39 wins. So, how, how does that how does that square? with our kind of different scenarios. And I thought you did something pretty cool where you have about like four different scenarios. Yeah. And, and then you, you, you assign some probabilities to those to figure out what would make that match sort of the expected value of those scenarios. So right. Break it down for us, Alex. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm taking Kevin Pelton's analysis as just true. Like if he's correct, that our expected wins this year is 39.4, which Last year would have made us ninth, but this year would make us eighth, according to him, because of uh, Cleveland dropping off the face of the earth. Um, it's um, I'm doing the like dumb and dumber, like so. You're saying there's a chance, uh, like w- w- how could that 39.4 expected 
value still contain some hope for us. And so what I have is four different stories for how the season goes. Um, one, the, the, um, the worst scenario is Reggie's not the same. He just he's, uh, is the same or worse than he was last year. And there's some sort of catastrophic injury to Blake Griffin 20 games into the season, and he misses the season. Um, and so we have no creative force on offense. We're dispirited, um, and we win like 25 games. The second, uh, the second story is um, second from the worst is Reggie's not the same, but Blake and Andre play the whole season, and they have okay chemistry, but you know they play about as well as they did last year when we were hoping it was just growing pains that we weren't awesome with them both on the floor. And we win, you know, we go about 500, we win 40 games in that scenario. And so that's like Kevin Pelton's dead on. Next is about the best we can reasonably expect is enough stuff goes right where Reggie Jackson has a little more spring in his step and or um, Stanley Johnson and Luke Kennard take a leap forward and or... Um, Blake Griffin figures out how to play with Andre Drummond and he starts running that Blake and DeAndre Jordan pick and roll. And, uh, Andre Drummond decides to just, you know, give up, uh, uh, shot put floaters from the dotted line. Uh, and or John Luer emerges from the the woods and actually the corpse of John Luer (laughs) emerges from the grave and, and everything. So enough of that goes right that we win like 46 games. And that's, that's about what Kevin Pelton says is the competition for the fourth seed. Indiana, Milwaukee, uh, Miami are all around there in his projection, and we're in the mix. That's the best we can reasonably expect. The the best we can unreasonably expect, absolutely everything breaks right for us. No one's injured. People develop steadily. Everyone plays their role right. Dwayne Casey has great ideas. Blake Griffin returns to a second-team All-NBA. Yeah, and I think in that scenario, we win about 52 games. That's like... That's like, you know, the best we can possibly expect. So what I did is just a simple, like, assign that best we can possibly expect a 10% chance that that happens. 90% chance that doesn't happen. And that might be too optimistic, but, you know, I picked a wrong number. What the hell? And then I I took those two middle scenarios and said the worst one is about twice as likely as the better one. Just to try to be realistic and not try to be too rosy. And then I just said, um, okay, Excel solve for that worst scenario. How likely does that worst scenario have to be in order for um, Kevin Pelton to be right about our expected value of 39.4? Okay, so what we had, and then it, it solved that. So we end up with 10% chance we win 52 games, 23% chance we win 46 games. So that, if you're keeping track at home, that's a 33% chance we're above 500 and definitely a playoff team. And it's it's... And we're, and we're we're fighting for the fourth seed. We're fighting for the fourth seed. It's a it's like an exciting season, and like a few of your friends start like not having their eyes glaze over when you say the word Pistons. Thirty three percent chance, forty six percent chance of that second worst scenario. Reggie's not the same. Blake and Andre have chemistry problems. Chemistry doesn't not chemistry problems, but like nothing clicks for them. We we're about a five hundred team. Leather, rinse, repeat, same as the last few seasons. Um, and then 21% chance of the catastrophic scenario where we're, we're, going, we're trying to become a lottery team. We have to just grind. We have to just live with it this season. 
grind it out next season with the same roster plus our lottery pick and then blow it up after that. Um, the, so this, this is not an exact science, obviously. The, a lot of ifs, a lot of hand-waving, a lot of just making up numbers. But I think it really just it shows that within that really quite distressing uh, pro- numerical projection that ESPN does, that we're going to be, be the same as last year, even though we have Blake Griffin and Reggie Jackson might come back and blah, blah, blah. There yeah. still is a decent amount of hope in there. You know, I, I, I like the, just looking at this, I might just... One one thing I might do to shift the probabilities around or would be to like say you know twenty one percent chance is a little bit high I hope that Blake gets injured because that's catastrophic not only for next season but potentially the Pistons franchise so we'll dial that back down to say ten percent and get that ten percent and make that sort of middle prediction fatter so we have like a fifty six percent chance of just being like we were last season uh, and then maybe. Take maybe that everything goes right is more like five percent, but then we have like an almost thirty percent chance that we're like things go pretty well and we're like close to fifty win team duking it out with Indiana, maybe Washington or whoever has a good season, Milwaukee to be the fourth seed. That seems maybe more likely to me, but it's exciting. Maybe more exciting to think that there's actually a ten a full ten percent chance that everything breaks right. But you know, there's there's definitely you can really make a credible argument that we have upside. We're we're not hopeless this year. Uh, To me. The bigger, the sort of the bigger question or the bigger fear for Pistons fans is that this is this is it for us. So if it doesn't turn out on the upside, then it's worse than it might be if we weren't as locked into this roster because it's going to be uh, two or three more years until we have a shot at you know we, we have to kind of we'd have to just sort of like uh, if, if if this if this season went really wrong, we might have to like. Uh, just sort of blow it up and 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 not, you know, just like w- w- kind of wait out tank while we wait out Blake Griffin's contract, basically. That's um, that's right, and and that's what I. Uh, that was the like the strongest argument I had for why it was fine to just do just swallow Blake Griffin's contract and go for it. Was the best case scenario is Blake approximately earns the money. The worst case scenario is he has terrible injury problems and we really suck. But then we're doing what what people wanted us to do anyway, which is tank. So it's you know we it's kind of like we have a decent strategy either way. Um, now if we just grind forward and win forty games every year going forward, um, neither of those is is good. You don't get a good draft pick, and also nobody cares about the Pistons, and it sucks. Um, but regardless, one way or the other, all of the SVG you know contracts start to end after next season. We, we start to, we get a bunch of cap room. If we're bad, we'll have draft picks and we'll, we can just go from there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good, that's a good turn of time to, to pause. And, um, it's a nice assessment of how things are going. Uh, I'm excited. The NBA season is coming, coming because I was running out of things to watch in the off season. I'm trying to watch some Michigan football, but nothing like a good old regular dose of, you know, special K at Blaha. Uh, to get you through the week so uh, stay with us and we probably have another episode as the season gets closer in about a month and thanks for listening